Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. It is, yeah, it is cool. It's basically like breakdancing on, on an event. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? Hello. It has been skating season at my house. Oh, super icy, super slick. Everywhere super you go. Super icy. I thought I was going to do an Aaron Jackson just straight down my driveway <laughs> with not nearly as much panache as she does it. So thankfully I did not. That's good. Well, you can always you know, maybe you twizzle next time. No, but I'll tell you, I definitely needed the parka version, not the ice dancing costume version. It is cold. <laughs> it is cold, but it's it's getting like holiday, Christmassy, seasonally nice. I'll you take are, it. You are not going to make me feel good about this oh, ice. Okay. All right, but I can make you feel good about today's guest, right? Absolutely. Oh, we got a doozy for you. But before we get to our interview, we'd like to take a moment to let you know that we've got a sponsor for this week's show, and we are so excited to welcome RR Auctions to our sponsorship package. RR Auctions was founded in 1976, and it is one of the most recognizable and trusted sources for Olympic memorabilia. And it also specializes in other collectibles categories, such as space and aviation, rare manuscripts and documents, presidential memorabilia, and much, much more. So every January, our, our auction has an Olympic auction, and it is online right now. The bidding will begin on January 9th and go through the 16th. The auction features over 150 rare and remarkable lots, including, get this, Allison, Olympic medals, including one from Rio, which is really interesting. Uh, yeah, there's wow. a real one. Yeah, gold medal from Rio. And it's one of those, like, they won't tell you whose it is or what sport it is until you actually purchase it because it's a very sensitive topic. Remember we talked about that with John Becker? Yes. So they've got one of those. They've got some diplomas and posters and badges and uh, torches. They've got torch from uh, 1956 Cortina. They and have a torch from Cortina. They do. And they also have a torch from Calgary. 
1988. I know. Oh my gosh. One of your favorites. I know. And one of the other cool things that they've got in the catalog is a little lantern from Nagano that held the mother flame. So it was, they always had a flame and a lantern just in case the torch went out and they've got one of those up for auction. That must be, be, I bet it was beautiful. I can't wait to see the pictures. I know. Well, you can check out the catalog online at our, our auction and you can visit, and also at the website, you can register to bid. And don't forget to mention that you heard about the auction from Olympic Fever podcast. So we'll have links to all of that and much more on the show notes and in our social media. So look out for that. Very exciting. I might, I might be purchasing something. <laughs> I know. I know. Need a Christmas gift a little bit late? That's okay. It's okay. This will be the Christmas gift for yourself. <laughs> oh, well, on to our guest. We are talking gymnastics with Jake Dalton. Jake competed with the U.S. men's gymnastics team in the 2012 and 2016 Olympics, and he's also a four-time medal winner at the World Championships. And he joined us to talk about how the sport works. Take a listen. Jake, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us and explaining men's gymnastics to us because it's such an exciting event and sport, and it's kind of a shame that the women's gymnastics takes the spotlight when the men are just amazing as well. So let's talk first about how each apparatus works. So it's just called Olympic order, so it's just the order that It's kind of hard to explain because not every team starts in Olympic order at the Olympics, but if you start on floor and you end on high bar, that's just the Olympic order. And there's a specific order that you go through for competition. So if you start on floor, it's kind of good for you. You start in Olympic order. It's just more common. You can, you can kind of practice that in practice if you want, but it's not always what you would start on, but it's just an order that, you know, that we call Olympic order. And that's pretty much what you go by for the Olympics. If you start on floor and you end on high bar. Okay, so then what is the Olympic order in between? If if floor is number one and high bar is number six, what's two through five? So it goes floor, pommel, rings, vault, parallel bars, high bar. Okay. So that would be that would be the full Olympic order right there. Okay. And I imagine that if you're a team and you're starting in slot number three, then you would go three, four, five, six, one, two. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So if you start on rings, then your next event would be vault, and then you go parallel bars, high bar, and then you go floor to pommel. So you would end on pommel. So, you know, obviously for us, pommel horse, or at least for me, was one of my worst events. So ending on pommel horse was always a little shaky. So (laughs) if I knew I started on rings, I knew I ended on pommel, which wasn't exactly my favorite, but at least you start on rings, which is usually a solid event and, you know, a little less likely to fall. Now, in men's gymnastics, as in women's gymnastics, people are going all at the same time. So both in the yep. team in the team event and the all-around event, there's somebody on every apparatus at the same time. Usually, usually, yeah, unless it's like a, an event final, yeah. Right, so event final, it's only that one event. So yep. obviously vault takes much less time than, say, high bar. So is there a lot of unevenness with the timing with some of those? Like, do you find, okay, I have vault, I'm going to sit a long time after this? <laughs> Yeah, sometimes you just, and that that just comes with experience. So parallel bars is usually an event that takes a long time because you have, each gymnast will have a certain amount. It's usually like 30 seconds for their warm up before they go and compete. So you have a pretty long time for them to warm up on parallel bars. Then the routines usually take a pretty long time. And the judges kind of take a little bit longer because it's just a long routine. So going from vault where you finish so fast, 
sometimes it's kind of nice because you're usually changing from like shorts to pants because on vault you're in shorts and then you, so it's, sometimes it's kind of nice to have that time to kind of relax get your things out for the next event that you kind of need but yeah you usually know when some events will take longer and some will take shorter and you kind of just use those times to relax and think about the next event did you have a favorite sort of transition like I love when I had to switch between these two because that was my favorite point. Because I would think the sitting and waiting would actually be too nervous. Like for me, I would lose my mind. <laughs> I really just liked getting started with the meet. For me, the worst part was you warm everything up and then there's usually a pretty long time between everybody getting corralled together. You walk out, you have the national anthem. Then you kind of do your one touch, um, which is just your little bit of a, a touch on the equipment before you compete. So for me, that was always the worst part. Like, like you said, when you're in the meet, at least you're the, you know, the ball is rolling, you're competing, you're going, and it, it all happens pretty fast. So that part to me was never too bad. It was always, you're done warming up and then you kind of sit and wait and you're like, okay, I really just want to go compete already. Let's just get this done and get it over with. So that was always kind of the worst part for me. In the old days with the 10 point <clears throat> system, the scores would go up as the meet went along in many ways because they would leave room at the top do you find that that's right. still happening with the new scoring system talking about how sort of going through the rotation yeah i would say maybe maybe a little bit i think the judges kind of they find when you start the competition they're kind of finding the ground so i think they do a good job of, of trying to keep it level especially with the open-ended system it's harder to kind of judge that because you know some guys might start their routines at a 16.5 and say they score like a 14 well, somebody else could come in, start at a 15.5 and still score a 14. So I would say sometimes, yeah, you might be able to see just like the average score of, say, floor starting on the first event, you know, is an average of a 14. And then at the end, maybe average of a 14.3 or 14.4. But, you know, with the open-ended system, I think it's a little bit harder to kind of judge that because everybody's start value is going to be so different. Now, when you talk about start value, that is how much the elements of your routine add up in points. You know, a front flip with a tuck is worth this much, uh, with a full twist is worth this much. I know with Correct. vault, you have to submit what vault you're going to do. Right. With the other events, do you have to submit a trick list for a better, for lack of a better word? Like, is that all mapped out ahead of time? It is, yes. Yeah. So usually what you do is your coach will submit your competition routines to the judges at those meets they'll know what skills you're supposed to do now if you say you kind of have a hiccup and if you're supposed to do a release move with a half turn and you just do a straight release move they're not necessarily going to deduct you for not doing it they kind of know you were supposed to do that but they won't deduct you unless there's actual deductions or a rhythm error they could probably hit you with but yeah they will actually have your list of skills that you're supposed to do They'll have your start value and with all your bonuses and your skills and the, the whole value of everything. So your start value will be on there. And then they have to make sure that they're watching and you're doing those actual skills because sometimes there's been instances where, like uh, I think it was at World Championships, maybe Kohei Uchimura did a triple-double. So that's three twists and two flips backwards on floor. And they only thought he did two flips and two twists. So sometimes, you know, they just have to make sure that what you're actually doing matches the skill sheet. And if not, they kind of adjust for that. But they can't ding you if you completed a double-double well, even if right. your list said a triple-double. Correct. I don't think they can um, because there's been times where, you know, say on vault, I was going to do a Kazumatsu double-full, which is like a – it's basically a souk with three twists. 
And say if I kind of mess up in the air and I only do a two and a half instead of a triple, I don't think they'll deduct you because of that. I, I'm not 100% if the rules have changed or not. Um, but yeah, if, you've if you did the skill correct and you did it really well, they won't deduct you for doing that skill instead of the one you put on your list. Okay, now I want to reference that tricks in gymnastics are named generally after the first person who did them. So you get the crazy names like a Sukahara. But yep, speaking exactly. of, do you have an element named after you? I do on parallel okay. bars, actually. Okay, because I, I saw that and I couldn't find a video or anything or mention of it elsewhere besides Wikipedia. So talk to us <laughs> about the, the, Dalton. Your, the Dalton. Yeah. So it's actually kind of a funny story. There's a skill on parallel bars where you start in your upper arms and you swing forward, you do a backflip with a half turn and you catch back on your upper arms. Uh, one of my buddies at our gym was trying to play with it and never ended up really kind of figuring it out. Um, and then we saw somebody train it and compete it at just a local competition. And in, in order to get it named after you, you have to do it at a world championships. So the skill actually started floating around with a few people and I ended up trying it and it was able to do it. It was actually a skill I felt very comfortable doing. And so I went to world championships, I submitted it, competed it. And I think this was in 2011, maybe. And I actually got it named after me. Well, the funny part was uh, apparently a Japanese gymnast did it at the Olympics in 2000. So he actually submitted it as well, but they denied it for some reason. So they took it away from me and gave it back to him because he actually did everything he was supposed to. They just didn't give it to him. So then I'm like, okay, bummer. So I go back to the drawing board and kind of figured out a new skill, which I'd never seen anybody do, was the same skill. So you're starting your upper arm, you do a backflip with a half turn, and then I just went to a hanging position instead of back to upper arm, um, which was actually a value higher. They gave it one value higher because it was a little bit of a, like a trickier skill to complete. I went to a World Cup, and in uh, I believe it was in Qatar, and I competed it there successfully. So they ended up giving me that skill. So that so I do continue to have a, a skill in Excellent. the code of points, thankfully. Yeah, which was uh, just kind of a bizarre way of it happening, but ends up kind of cool because it you know the first skill was I'd, I'd kind of seen it a little bit here and there and someone had done it before but the skill I actually got named was uh, I'd never seen before and I don't think anyone had done before so it was pretty cool all right let's take a step back and go Olympic order some mm -hmm. some of the basic things on each apparatus so start with the okay. floor how many tumbling passes do you have to do on a floor exercise the, the crazy thing about gymnastics is every four years they're, they're changing things. So since I've kind of competed, things have kind of changed a little bit. Usually there's probably between five and seven passes on floor. Uh, you have to have your 10 skills for to meet every requirement. So you want to do front tumbling, back tumbling. You have to have a dismount. I believe there's actually four requirements. They took one away on every event. And so it was front tumbling, back tumbling, a dismount and a non-acrobatic skill, which would be like a press to handstand or flares, which is kind of a pommel horse skill, something that's non-tumbling. So you would have all of those. So you can really come up with whatever you want, um, which is, you know, the open-ended system is kind of nice. You're just coming up with a, a routine of skills that you're good at that's going to have a high value and that you can hit consistently. You know, there's other small ones where you used to have to touch every corner of the floor. You could only do two passes in a row, which they've changed that since I've competed. You can do three in a row now. But usually you'll have two to three passes. You'll do a side pass, which is you're going down the side of the floor, and then two or three more again. Now, men do not use music, and women do. Yep, correct. Do you wish you could? <laughs> um, 
for a different reason than than the women. So the women do it for for dance, and they have elements in dance that they do. I think it'd be kind of cool if you could just put on something that pumps you up and pumps everybody up. You know, oh, come on. Uh, I think that would the be kind of cool. European <laughs> folk music does not pump you up. Hookah yeah. classics does not pump you up. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, a little Beethoven or something might be kind of cool, but yeah, no, I uh, I think it'd be cool just to have something you know that that's energizing and fun and exciting but it wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with the routine, I don't think. But yeah, that would be the only thing I would say would be cool. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the rings. Tell okay. us how the rings work, because the rings make my upper body hurt. <laughs> Mine too, actually. <laughs> so <laughs> Rings is actually, for me, I always thought of it as just a kind of a solid event because you're doing a lot of strength. There's So kind of just two things, strength and swinging elements. Um, but then you have like static strength where you're just maybe you're lowering it into a position and holding it or there's swinging uh, swing to strength. So you're doing a swing element up into a strength element. So there's a, th that's another one. Then just regular swinging elements where you're doing like a double front between the rings and you swing out of it and then you have a dismount as well. So rings is pretty, um, I'd say pretty simple in terms of just the event of understanding it you just have strength and swinging pretty much but i always liked it because it was a consistent event for me you, you know really and the only way to mess up is if you're just too weak and you can't hold your skills or you do a swinging element that you're supposed to hold and you kind of fall out of that hole or on your dismount but you know it's usually a, a consistent event which was one of the things i liked and when you're nervous your strength is usually amped up a little bit so that was always helpful too so I have a, a couple questions. Uh, do you have to keep your toes pointed during that one? Do the judges look for toe point on that? They do, yep. yep. Okay. So if your legs are straight, toes are supposed to be pointed. And if you're in a straddle, same thing. Um, they just want that nice, smooth line. Okay. And then what do you do with your body to make it stop from a swinging move to a static move? It's basically like you just kind of tense everything up. So you're going from like a movement say if you're swinging back up into like a Maltese where you kind of look like a plane, right? Your arms mm -hmm. are out to the side and you're holding yourself up. So you're really just, you're trying to keep pressure on the rings because if they're slack on the rings, there's going to be kind of like a bounce or you're going to miss a hold or you're going to fall through. So you're really just trying to keep everything as in control as possible to get to that movement. And then you, you hit the strength position and you just, you squeeze everything as, as tight as possible to try to keep your body from moving. How how much of a massage do you need when you're done? That's because that's yeah. all I think. Oh I just yeah. want a massage thinking about a that. Yeah, <laughs> a lot. Yeah, no, Reeves, it's and luckily doing it from such a young age, your body's kind of used to it after a while. All the swinging elements, and you're doing small strength and stabilizing things for all the small muscle groups that you know probably most even now I don't really use very much. So you're just you're kind of used to it for having done it for so long. Okay. Next up in the order is pommel. Pommels is before rings. So well, we'll go back. Uh, pommel horse. Pommel horse is uh, is kind of a tricky one. A lot of people compare it to beam for girls, where there's a lot of balance involved. There's you know for guys where you're like for me, I'm a little bit shorter. I'm a little bit stockier. It's really hard. My arms behind my back. So swinging on pommel horse is fairly difficult. You usually want to be um, have a little bit longer arms, a little bit more flexible. And it's, it's a pretty difficult event in terms of just overall because one small movement or small adjustment or small hand placement of like one, you know, half an inch, your hand's too far to the side on the pommel and it throws you completely to the side. 
but um, there's swinging elements and traveling elements. So for example, a circle is where you're just circling your body around the pommel. Um, you're going to have skills with that. You have swinging elements where you're splitting your legs and you're doing what we call a scissor and your legs are kind of going from side to side. You have a dismount again, and then you have like Russians, it's called a Russian circle. So you're kind of swinging your body all the way around the horse, like a circle, but you're also moving your hands at the same time. So you're actually staying in kind of the same position and your body's just circling all the way around rather than just swinging your legs around and picking your hands up so your body can swing between your arms. And now explain what a flare is, because you hear that term a lot. Yeah, exactly. It's basically like a circle where you're still picking up your hands and your legs are coming around, that's a circle. Now a flare, you're gonna split your legs. So it's basically like a circle with split legs, but it looks really cool because your legs are kind of going up and down and you're still picking hands up. So your, your lower body is going around and your legs are going up and down. And just the way that physics kind of works, you have to fling like, you know, if you're circling to, you know, counterclockwise, your right leg has to go up, your left leg comes under, and then on the other side, your left leg is going up and your right leg goes under. And you're kind of just doing that on each side. There's nothing cooler than traveling flares on pommel. It is, yeah, it is cool. It's basically like break dancing on, on an event. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, see, and and we had interviewed a hammer thrower a few weeks ago, and the, those, like the Russian circles, I think, make me think that you are like the hammer in a hammer throw, and if you <laughs> miss the grip, like, you could go flying, correct? Yeah, yeah, I okay. mean, you probably, you'll probably see people, if you just miss the pommel horse and slip a little bit, um, yeah, you're you're off and you're flipping around. <laughs> it's worse <laughs> when you slip behind your, behind yourself. So if you're going to step behind, you'll miss because now you're blind and you can't see where, you, where you're going. And usually that's when you'll spin on your back on the horse and flip off. That one's, that one's a, a little crazy. <laughs> Holy cow. Because usually at the, the elite level, when people fall off the pommel, it's just, they don't go flying. They just sort of right. they missed a balance and they kind of land on their feet. But every once in a while, you'll see them just <laughs> spin out like kids on that spinning thing in the playground yeah, where they'll just exactly. shoot off and land yeah yeah it doesn't happen very often but it, it definitely does there's uh if you see someone with two kind of scabs on the middle of their back you pretty much know that they missed something and spun on the pommel and flipped off because that's pretty much what happens <laughs> ouch ouch all right so we've done floor pommel and rings what is what is next Four pommel rings vault. You're basically running down a long strip, hurtling yourself at a block, and then propelling yourself in the air to do as many twists as possible and flips and landing it perfectly. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds sane, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much what you're doing. You're just running as fast as you can at this solid object and trying to throw yourself off, flip and twist as much as you can and stick it. So men do not seem to do as many, and, and maybe I'm wrong, as many of the round-off takeoffs that women do. Correct. Is there right. a reason why? Because like most, a lot of women vaults, they do a flip onto the springboard and then onto the vault. Men don't seem to do that as much. Yeah, I don't. It's just kind of always been like that. I think, you know, usually men are a little bit more powerful, so they're able to kind of run and throw their body and use their upper body to flip off the vault. And the round-off entry allows you to gain a little more speed into the table, and it also requires a little more flexibility. Most guys are not as flexible to reach behind their back, so you'll see them do a round-off entry 
and the and they'll be reaching back behind themselves to block off the table. That requires a, a quite a bit more flexibility in your back and your shoulders. Um, so not as many guys do that, but it is a really great way to produce a lot more power going into the vault. So I think for the women, especially because they're so little, it's a lot easier for them to gain the speed and the power. Plus they have the flexibility to, to reach back and launch off the table. What is harder landing something where you're facing outward or landing when you're facing the vault? Depends on the person. Most people, when you land facing the vault is usually a little bit easier because you can kind of spot the landing. If you have bad ankles, that kind of hurts. <laughs> so if you land a little bit short, you're just usually enabled to, enabled to stick it. You have to land a little bit short because your momentum is going forward. So if you're landing facing the vault, you have to kind of come in at an angle where your ankles are going to be a little bit, you know, you have to have some good flexibility to be able to land that. But it also allows you to spot the floor a little bit easier and you can see it when it's coming. If you land facing away from the vault, usually it's a blind landing and you kind of have to guess where the where the floor is. You know, if, if you're good enough and you, you're coming out of it out of a twist, you can kind of spot it behind you, but it's still a blind landing. But it's a lot easier on the ankles compared to landing facing the vault. So, you know, I, I competed a vault where I landed forwards for a long time until I started doing the triple full. And then I started landing facing the vault. And I definitely had a couple of short ones where it, it stings the ankles pretty bad, but uh, it just depends on the person and, and kind of what you would prefer. How much can you see while you're flipping? For me, there was always just specific parts. So, you know, once I block off the table, you can kind of see the ground for a very split second. And then you're just wrapping your twist and you kind of know where you're at. And then after that, as you're coming to the ground is when you kind of spot it again. Uh, it, again, it kind of just depends on how many twists or how many flips you're doing. If you're doing a handspring with a double front, um, you know, you might block off the, the table. You'll see the ground once, come around twice, and then that's when you're going to land. So it depends on the vault that you're doing. But it's, I would say pretty much everything, there's a very split time or a split second that you might see it at one point, and then you're coming around to the landing. Okay, but it's very asked, hard to spot the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I, I asked the same question when we were talking to Laura Wilkinson, who is a diver. Have you ever have you ever lost yourself in the air and had just no idea where you were? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that sometimes you'll get lucky and you'll come around and you land and you're like, oh, thank gosh, thank gosh, I landed that, you know. Or sometimes it ends up to eating it pretty hard. <laughs> but that's that's pretty scary is when you're just you get lost. That's exactly what we call it. You just get lost in the air and your kind of equilibrium or your air awareness is just thrown off for a split second. Cause you're usually it happens because you either twisted early or you did something you're not used to and you just kind of get lost. And that's when it's pretty scary. Is there an optimal speed that you go down that runway? I mean, too slow, obviously you're not going to get enough power, but if you go too fast, are you going to bounce off the block too hard or too awkwardly? Yeah, and again, that goes with the skills, uh, whatever vault you're doing. But I always like to kind of start, you know, with a slight jog and speed up to as fast, not necessarily as fast as you can, but probably, you know, as fast as you can while you're in control. Um, but yeah, if you're doing a really hard vault and sometimes you're running as fast as you can, sometimes you'll be a little too close to the table when you go and hit and you kind of see them bend everything super, super tight on the table. And that doesn't allow for a good block because now you're kind of pushing rather than having a strong block and it sending you up. So there's a good balance of not too fast where you're going to crunch into the table and lose your block, but also not too slow where you have no no rebound off the table also. So parallel is next, right? Yeah, parallel bars. 
parallel bars. Yep. So that's basically you have swinging elements where you're swinging on your your hands and your body's going kind of back and forth. And there's a lot of different elements that way. There's an underhang where you're swinging under, and, and then there's um, it's called the uh, upper arm. So you're going from upper arm, and then you have dismounts as well. I was just going to say, this is the first one of the ones we've gone through there where there are release moves, where you let go, flip around, and catch it again. Yes, there is. Yeah, and parallel bars and high bar are kind of similar in that aspect where you can do multiple skills where you're flipping, letting go, catching, whether you're catching on your upper arms or you're catching in a hang or you're catching back on uh, in support or whatever it is because there's some skills where you just swing forward, you pop, do a backflip, and then you catch on your hands again, or you can swing under, do a flip, and catch on your arms. There's... It's kind of fun because there's a lot of different elements and just depending on what kind of gymnast you are, you can kind of do a lot with it. How much does that hurt when you land on your arm? Yeah, uh, if you land wrong, it hurts pretty good. Um, But usually just because you've done it so often, you kind of build, you know, calluses and you kind of bruise the arm up a little bit to where it's just kind of used to it. So if you land and a lot of the time you want to be able to kind of catch the bars before you land. So there's because you'll get a rhythm deduction if you kind of just slam into the P-bars. So you usually want it to be pretty nice and easy and, and smooth. But yeah, there's definitely been times where you kind of catch and it either scrapes or, or you're just, the worst is probably if you hit directly, like you go up, come directly down and hit on like a pressure point and your arm just goes numb. You're like, okay, I have to sit down for a minute. I can't move my arm. Those are kind of the worst ones, but usually it's not too bad. <laughs> Do you have to work up and down the parallel bars too in a routine or does it mostly stay in a part of the area? You're not required to move up and down. For okay. example, on floor, you you know, you usually want to hit all the corners. On parallel bars, uh, it's not really like that, but people usually do move across the parallel bars because of the skills. For example, if you're swinging and you're, you have a grip, I like to do a pretty big part of the P-bars. Basically, you take honey and chalk and, or some people use like sugar water or syrup, something that has sugar and it's kind of sticky. And then you put chalk over it on the parallel bars, and that allows you to have a grip more than just your hand and chalk. So that's when you see them kind of throwing the stuff on the parallel bars. Then they throw some chalk up there. They're making a grip for their routine. And a lot of the time, I would have to make a grip right here. And then you go to this side, and you make a grip over here because you have a swinging element right here. You do a couple more, and then you end up on this side, and now you need to swing again. So that gives you a little bit of a grip when your hands are kind of sweaty and all the chalks rubbed off from the first half of the routine so p-bars is that's why p-bars take so long you have guys that are chalking up the p-bars you have a certain amount of time for that and then the routine usually takes a long time because there's a lot of elements where you're swinging and holding and pausing and things like that if you're like the fifth guy in the rotation do you get four other guys chalk and sugar or honey mixture in there or is that pretty much gone at the end of your routine you and it, again it depends on the gymnast but usually yes it kind of it can add up from what they have so then you'll see guys with sandpaper and they go and kind of sand it all off so uh you can kind of start fresh so depending on what you're used to some guys like a lot of chalk all over the bars and for me i like to sand it off because i could kind of create my own grip every time rather than just hoping there was going to be chalk on the bar i like to be able to create my own grip so almost like you know if you're painting, you just have a clean slate, right? And you can paint, paint whatever you want. You're not working on someone else's painting every time. And that allowed me to try to be as consistent as possible with what grip I was getting. 
you know, so if you had a guy who liked a lot of chalk and I went up there and sand it all away, he's up next. He's thinking, oh, well, that, you know, that stinks because I wanted all that chalk on there. But that's just kind of the roll of the dice. And, and that's why I trained, you know, sanding the bar every time and doing my own grip because I knew that I'd be able to control, can kind of control my own environment at every meet. Are you required to do an element on only one bar? Because I see that a great deal where they're sort no, of flipped to the no. side. Yeah, you don't have to, but uh, usually the harder skills, you know, will be on one bar, you know. So a lot of the time uh, they call it a peach basket where you kind of you swing under the bar and you flip up to a handstand and you could normally catch on both hands on two rails. But a lot of guys now will do a peach basket and catch on just one rail and then you have to hold that handstand. So it, it increases the value of the skills and the the points that you would be getting for that skill because it makes it harder. So when you see someone swing off to the side, it just allows them to get an extra turn in, but now they have to maybe swing under the bar, kip up and go back in. So it's just, it, it's another element. You're not required to do it, but a lot of people might do it because it adds extra value. The other thing that's been added to parallel bars and in my watching career is a lot of guys will now do a low swing where they bend their knees. Yeah. So under the bar. Yeah. Right. That is so hard for me to get used to seeing it's still, you know, my 1980s brain is still going, Oh no, don't do that. But that yeah, seems to be yeah. just totally accepted now that that swinging down with the bent knee is just sort of standard procedure. Yeah, it is because basically the parallel bars are only so high. So when you're when you're swinging below it, you have to bend your knees because there are certain elements where you swing through and you're able to do kind of a tap and scoot your legs through with them straight. Um, but if you're just doing like a giant where you're just going from handstand, you swing down and back to handstand again, uh, you basically just bend your knees and it's no deduction as long as you're not hitting the floor. If you hit the floor, then that's a deduction um, and they can take that away from you. But but yeah, you bend your knees and it allows you to kind of, it just opens up a lot of skills, almost like high bar, because you can now swing, you can flip from it, you can do a backflip and a half turn and catch, you can swing right back to handstand, you can go to one one rail from it, there's just a lot more skills that you can do. But yeah, you want to bend right when you go to the floor and then straighten them right as you uh, come away from the floor as well. It's probably the only time where your bent knee is acceptable. Exactly, yep, yep. And it has to be, you know, they want you to bend them right before you're, going to hit the floor and then straighten them right after so you're back into that smooth line. Okay. So speaking of high, high bar, bar, let's get into bar. that. This is <laughs> my most, favorite. Usually, the most exciting. I was going to say it's probably pretty much everybody's most favorite. It's most exciting. It's kind of like watching a Cirque show, you know. You're mm -hmm. usually swinging around this bar, doing flips and catching. Um, so you're going to have swinging elements where you're just swinging and turning. Uh, so you do a giant, you do a full turn and catch again. Uh, you have release moves where you see guys do double flips over the bar, flips with twists, or just it's called a takachiv. So you're you're swinging up this way. You let go, your body comes up and over, and you catch again. And then you have in bar elements where you're bringing your legs kind of up by your hands and swinging around. Then you come back out through a handstand, and then you have a dismount as well. So it's mainly all swinging elements that are either releasing and catching, or swinging, turning, trying to catch and handstand. Now, how high is the high bar? Uh, you actually there's so there is a, they have a set height requirement that you can't go above or below. Sometimes if you're tall and you're hitting the mats, usually they'll pull some of the the mats apart. So there's like a four inch mat, and then there's an eight inch mat. The eight inch mat never moves. The four inch mat would be separated so people get a few extra inches that they can swing. 
And if needed, I have seen them have to raise it, raise it. And that's only allowed if you are hitting the, the bottom, you can raise the bar. But um, usually it's high enough. I, I, I'm not sure, nine, maybe nine feet-ish? Because, you know, on yeah. that eight-inch mat, we can jump up there no, no problem. But if you need to, you can raise it. For me, I liked it as low as possible, so I wasn't so high from the ground. <laughs> <laughs> you know. What muscles in your upper body are you using the most with this apparatus? I would say, like, well, forearms for your arms a lot because you you have to hold on the entire time. So when you have a longer routine, your forearms are what's getting tired, and it's kind of scary so you don't slip off, uh, which is the reason we wear those grips. And then um, I would say shoulders, a lot of shoulder work because you're kind of collapsing your shoulders, you're opening your shoulders and uh, working through pretty much the whole routine through your, your shoulders and your arms. And this, unlike parallel bars, you do not get to spray your sticky stuff and chalk up there, do you? Um, you can jump up and just put chalk on, but you don't want to put honey up there because the amount of times you're going around the bar, it usually would just take the chalk away and you would slip off. So you're basically okay. just putting chalk up there. Sometimes you go up and put uh, just water and chalk to get the chalk to stick around the bar a little bit better. Um, but yeah, you sometimes you'll get up there and the bar is pretty bare and I like to just throw some chalk up there just to get some extra chalk. Now, are you using hand grips? Yes, yes. on high bar you use grips. It's got kind of a small leather dowel um, right basically between your fingers. And so when you do a release move and you catch the bar, that's going around the bar and allowing you to hold on a lot better. And those will, those will be what happens sometimes is that, that leather grip will snap or it'll rip. And that's when you see someone like fly off the bar because as soon as that grip, you have all that tension on the grip. And if it rips, you, you basically, you just slip off and there's not really anything you can do. It's, uh, it's almost like if you had, if you were holding onto something on a bar and someone had a towel under you and they, you were, you know, swinging around and they pulled that towel out, your hand now like doesn't have any contact with the bar. So that sometimes is pretty dangerous what happens people will their grips will break and they'll kind of go flying off the bar <laughs> if you ask people it's happened and it's a little that's really scary because you have no idea it's going to happen and the grip just kind of fails holy cow high bar is certainly the scariest in terms of as uh, a uh, i would say yes <laughs> my mom hated watching it <laughs> <laughs> that was my, my mom brain was going where i'm like oh yeah, yeah. Alt is about to fling himself up in the air, flip a few times, you know, 12 feet in the air, and then just catch on a little yeah. leather dowel that may break. Yep, exactly. But on yeah, the flip was... side, when it's amazing, it's the most amazing. It is. It's really cool. Yeah. There was, I always had to get myself kind of really amped up to go do the routine because it is, it's scary and it's nerve wracking. Some people are comfortable up there. For me, I was, I was always kind of scared. So I had to go really get myself amped up and just go like, 110% that way I wouldn't kind of, you know, because if you're too timid on some things, that's when you kind of come close to the bar or, or you slip or something weird kind of happens. So I usually just try to really get myself amped up for it and just go all out. <laughs> okay. Shorts versus pants for different events. What's the deal? Yeah. So just floor and vault is when you're wearing shorts. And that's because when we wear pants, um, in order to keep the pants tight, you have stirrups on the bottom that go around your foot. So those are usually over your socks. They go over your socks and hold the pants. To, so when you bend your knees, the, ju the judges will know you're bending your knees and they take a deduction. And if you were to wear that on floor or vault, you're going to slip because that stirrup goes under your foot and you don't really have a grip. So that's pretty much just you're wearing shorts just on those two events where you're, you're running and you're landing and you're doing a lot of the, the elements that you don't want to slip on. 
All right. When you are building up your body for this, how much bicep work, shoulder work, how much upper body weight work did you have to do? It's a lot more upper body than lower body for, mm-hmm. for men, I would say, just because we have floor and vault and those are the two right. events. You know, women have floor, vault, beam, and then bars are the only upper body. So we definitely do a lot more um, upper body, but we didn't necessarily focus too much. You know, if you're, if you're bodybuilding, you're, spe- you're specifically working out one muscle group or, or maybe two muscle groups and you're targeting them exactly. For gymnasts, we would always do circuit training. So you're kind of doing a full body circuit almost every time you're doing conditioning. So, you know, you would go from handstand push-ups to press handstands, which is all upper body. Then you're doing, you know, block jumps. So you've got some lower body, you're doing leg lifts, you've got some core. We really would have circuits where you have, you know, anywhere between 10 to 30 stations and it's just a full body, full body workout pretty much. Okay. So then my, my other question with the body, because men's gymnastics, you guys have like the most amazing biceps, I think, <laughs> among Olympic athletes. How difficult was it for you to find dress shirts that fit you? It's you need them custom, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the idea for gymnastics, at least for most of us, is I mean, there there's so many events where the upper body, it, you're just you know the the strength elements we're doing in those circuits is specifically for the elements you're training for gymnastics. And there's so much for the upper body that you're just kind of overworking the upper body. And I think that's why our biceps develop so much is especially something like rings where you're constantly putting all that stress right there. Um, I think that's just why we kind of build bigger biceps. So custom shirts would be nice, would definitely be nice because you're trying to also be as small as you can and as light as you can. So if you have a big upper body, you've got a small waist, you know, I'd have a a large t-shirt that is kind of tight on my arms, but baggy everywhere else and kind of long. But if I have a medium, it looks like I went and chopped at like a baby gap, you know, and it's super tight on my arms. <laughs> and I look like that guy that, you know, wants to wants to show off all his muscles or something. So it's kind of a, a an awkward medium that you have to try and figure it out. So you're going to be home 2020 and you're going to be watching. Who are you going to be excited to see? Mm, that's hard to say because, you know, we don't know the teams. You know, if I, if I just had to guess, you know, obviously Sam, he's been, mm-hmm. he's been continuing to be around. So I think, you know, he's got a very good shot at being on the team. Um, so I'm always excited to watch him cause he's, you know, he could be one of the best gymnasts in the world and has been for a long time. So, you know, if he's consistent, that could be a really great Olympic games for him. Um, would also be excited to see Yule out there, Yule Moldauer, who trained at OU with us, and I kind of watched him kind of grow up. So kind of hoping the best for him, that he stays healthy, continues to work hard, and, and is able to make that team. Um, but really, you know, I, I'm still good friends with all of the guys there. If I was to go hang out with all of them, I would still have a great time, and I want the best for all of them. Um, I'm just probably most connected. I was on a lot of teams with Sam, so I could know him really well. And I trained a lot with Yule, um, so I kind of know those guys the, the best, I would say. And a lot of the other guys on our teams are retired now, too. So I think those two guys uh, I would definitely be excited to see out there. Um, I would love to see Don, Don L. Wittenberg uh, get healthy and get back out there. I know he's been one of the best gymnasts. He could be one of the best gymnasts in the world if he could be healthy and, and kind of have everything click. But, you know, really it's just that, that Team USA pride. I'm really, I'd be proud and excited to see any of those guys out there just go out and do a great job. And how crazy are the Japanese fans going to be for the Japanese team? I, I think it'll be crazy, but I think it'll be awesome. The uh, The culture in Japan, we've been a couple of times, is 
outstanding. They're such nice, nice people, and they're so inviting for everything. I remember competing when I was younger there, uh, just at a at a international competition, and they were cheering for us too. So it was really, really cool. They just, I think they love the sport. They love the competition. Obviously, they want their team to do well, but they don't do it in like a demeaning way. They want every, they want it to be a great competition, but obviously want their guys to win. But I think it'll be really, really cool. I think it's going to be a, a fun Olympics to watch. Thank you so much, Jake. You can follow Jake on Twitter and Insta at Jake underscore Dalton. On Facebook, he's official Jake Dalton. And he's also got a YouTube channel. So search Jake Dalton for that. Are there videos of him flipping in the air? Oh, yes, of course there are. Oh, my God. I hope there are no videos of him flying off the pommel horse. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I was watching some fails on the high bar. Oh, Oh, that was scary stuff. No, thank you. I like watching other people do it. I think it's amazing. I know. If you ever have a chance to see high bar in person, it's even more amazing because you realize how truly high. And, yeah, and, how high and they how fly. Fast yes. they go. Yeah, it's very, just, very cool. Yeah, when you see it on TV, you don't quite get the perspective of the speed they generate in those giants. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's I, I know I embarrassed you during the interview because I was asking about his biceps, but I will let you know that a burning question I had in the middle of the interview, I did not ask. Oh, no. Because I, I figured there was no answer for this, but I really wanted to go, so uh, what grit sandpaper do you use? Oh, my God. Because <laughs> I didn't know. Maybe he's particular about that. But then I realized, no, he probably just goes to the hardware store and buys sandpaper generic you know i bet they are particular well jake we'll find out i bet they are particular they're particular about everything else like Mm -hmm. he had his ratio of sugar water and everything Mm -hmm. i bet the grit matters i do want to know that is so midwestern of you (laughs) what grit sandpaper do you use oh yeah well i guess that means it's time to move on In our Team Olympic Fever segment, we hear what's going on with our past guests, and this segment is sponsored by PinCollector.com. PinCollector is the world's largest free online community for Olympic pin collectors, and it's a great place where you can catalog and value and show off your collection. They've got so many pins, it's updated in real time. You always have the most current information available about what pins are out there and what they're worth. It's also a great platform for buying, selling, and trading pins. And the rates are a lot lower than other online platforms and or auctions. I am on pincollector.com and you should be too. Visit them and sign up for a free membership today. And thanks to our partnership with Pin Collector, we have our very own Olympic Fever Pin. If you become a Patreon patron or make a one-time $20 PayPal donation, you can get yours. They're really cool. They are very cool. And I'm very for, excited about these pins. As well you should be. They are they're extremely cool. And for a limited time, if you become a patron or make a PayPal donation, you can also get a very cool authentic Olympic card from yours truly. Nice. Visit olympfever.com slash support hyphen the hyphen show for more information. 
So what have our people been up to? We've been, they've been busy. They are busy. Well, we are smack dab in the winter sports season. So yes, we are. Devin Logan, our freestyle skier, was at Copper Hill for an event, and she placed sixth in the women's free ski half pipe. So nice. good for her. And she had, she was off a lot of last season, so it's good to see her back on the slopes and, yes, and doing exactly. well. Exactly. Claire Egan was competing in the biathlon at Hawkfieldson, and she didn't have a great individual day. She uh, got 66th in the 7.5-kilometer sprint, but then the women's 4x6-kilometer relay placed 10th, and she shot cleanly. So good for her on that. So Rifey did not get put in a corner. No, no. <laughs> it learned how to behave. <laughs> exactly. Bobsled was back in Lake Placid, and Joshua Williamson was in Hunter Church's four-man sled, and he placed 11th in their first competition and 5th in their second. Oh, he was back with Hunter Church this time. Yes, yes. Excellent. And then, man, Kelly Humphreys joins Team USA and is just killing it. She chose Lauren Gibbs to be her break woman again, and they placed first once again. So this has been a fantastic start to Lauren's season. We are Good excited job. For her. Yeah, nice new partnership for her since uh, Elena Myers-Taylor, a little busy this season, growing a baby. And lifting weights. Have you seen those videos of her lifting weights? Oh my <laughs> gosh, she is amazing. I have a feeling that she will be like Dawn Harper Nelson and making a comeback and training with baby. Didn't you just see like her say, well, I'm just going to start in the sled with the baby here. On my chest, wrapped in the little, the little snuggly a thing. Little, a little bobsled car seat. <laughs> Imagine but that. oh my the god baby. the baby would probably love it they would just nap through the whole thing oh probably probably but i cannot imagine that that would be happening anytime soon unless you got one of those really old sleds like they have at the the lake placid bobsled experience it just as they have very old sleds you don't go nearly as fast you can strap a baby seat on them <laughs> maybe maybe uh, moving on to the world of speed skating, Erin Jackson competed in World Cup number four in, in Nagano. So she was in Japan recently. And in the first 500 meter ladies division B, she placed fifth. And then in the second 500 meter ladies division B, she placed first. And she was 0.61 seconds ahead of the next competitor, which is pretty awesome. So which that's, is a lot. I know, I know. So she's really starting to do well in that B division, and that's great. I mean, she hasn't been on ice skates for very long, so good that you're uh, getting your feet there and showing some improvement. Yeah, and nice. you know, and she's currently ranked 24th in the world in the 500 meters. Wow, I know. That's really impressive. I mean, I she's really only been ice skating for what? This is her Two third years, season. Her, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've been ice skating since I was three. <laughs> and I don't even think I'd make it around the oval in a 500. <laughs> and Charlie White and Meryl Davis are in the class of 2020 for the U.S. Figure Skating Hall of Fame, elected in their first year of eligibility. Which As they should be. I know, I know. When you think about the fact that they were the first American ice dancing couple to win gold at the Olympics, it's, it's pretty incredible the feat that they accomplished in a in a discipline that the u.s just isn't very strong in well they are now yes well that's true now yeah they are also going to be in lake placid on the 30th to perform in stars on ice the aips sport media awards has shortlisted our sustainability expert mcamp in its best column of 2019 awards and this is for mcamp's column called uh, sport must take the concerns and values of young people seriously to remain relevant 
Nice. I so we'll link to that. Yes. Our hockey player, Brianna Decker, is leading one of the teams in the Pro Women's Hockey Players Association Dream Gap Tour. And she'll be heading up a team in Philadelphia from, and they will be there February 29th through March 1st. Nice. So we'll have a link to that event in the show notes. And then Laura Wilkinson is in Minnesota this week because she is competing at Winter Nationals for diving. And this is like her first competition back. So she's hasn't been on the 10-meter platform much. So she's decided that she's going to compete in the preliminaries. And she's probably going to do just two dives of the five that she signed up for. Just to get her feet wet and see what competition is like and uh, get some training in. So she's got a really good attitude going into it. And she doesn't have a whole lot of pressure to prove herself or try to win or anything so she just wants to see what it's like to compete again it'll be okay, great can we can we just say a year ago mm-hmm. she was getting her neck fused right and we talked to her about a year ago and she was in a neck brace and a year later she's competing at u.s winter nationals i know that's fantastic yes so nice job so if you're not surprised though no, I'm not surprised either. Though, can we just say Winter Nationals in Minneapolis? Well, you want to emphasize the winter. Apparently. <laughs> if you happen to be listening to this right when it releases, she's actually competing today, Thursday the 19th at 1245 Central Time. And the live stream will be on USA Diving's website. So we will have a link to that. And we'll put that link on social too. So you can watch it. Cheer her on. That's right. All right, moving on to Tokyo 2020 news. Tokyo 2020 has announced the first torchbearers for the 2020 torch relay, and they will be members of the women's soccer team who won the 2011 Soccer World Cup. Nice. So exciting. They'll need a little mother flame. They will need, they will have a little mother flame. Always in the car with them, I'm sure. And the National Stadium is done. At the Tokyo Olympic website, they have a virtual tour of the stadium. (gasps) Do they really? Oh, I have to see that. I had posted the announcement online and listener Don pointed out, which I didn't notice, the way the seats are designed, it looks like the stadium is full, even when seats are empty. It is really cool when you realize that the seats aren't filled. So is that because of the shape or the color? I think it's the color. I think there's different shading and stuff. And yeah, it's really, really neat. Huh. I mean, so you won't they... need any seat fillers. No, but, it, well, I mean, who knows about that? I don't think they're going to need but any like, seat fillers. But, but when, when you have events there that don't fill up stadiums, now you don't have that look on TV anymore. Sustainability. I know. They think of every little detail. It's fantastic. Speaking of every little detail. Oh, Paris 2024, you never cease to delight me with your decisions. So we had talked about this. Now it's it's like a couple months ago this first yeah. came up. Yeah. That surfing may happen in Tahiti. <laughs> that is correct. And this seems to be now Paris's, Paris 2024's choice. Yes, They had five sites bid to host the surfing competition, four in France and one in French Polynesia, and they have selected French Polynesia. But, I mean, the impetus behind that selection was because the waves there are really some of the best in the world. So I get that, 
And I get that it's probably the optimal competitive choice. But, but you we know. have enough trouble this time around with the marathon being a train ride away in Sapporo. Right. How are we dealing where literally it is on the other an event is happening on the other side of the world? I'm just going to put this out there. In like 2023, maybe around September, the IOC is going to realize that Tahiti is like 23 hours by plane away. And then they're going to say, we all agreed to move it to a different part of France for the athlete because we had the athlete's best interest at heart and we want them to have a proper Olympic experience. I was really looking forward to Thomas Bach in his coconut bra and his best shirt. Because <laughs> if you're going to do that, I am all for Tahiti. Otherwise, it's not the Olympics. It's just some random surfing event on the World Cup. If you stick it in Tahiti, as fabulous as the waves are, that is not the Olympics. The Olympics, the point of the Olympics is we all come together. Mm-hmm. All the sports, all the countries. If you've got one sport happening someplace else. Right. And even though there's always the spreading out of sports, particularly in something that's got a tournament around it, like football or yes. hockey. But like, seriously, when you think about one sport with one venue being on the other side of the world, and not to mention you're going to have to transport these people back and forth. When you talk about that in terms of like, oh, sustainability, oh, oh, we're suddenly going to have some planes go just for this. I mean, we've always had, you know, in the Winter Olympics, there's always a sliding center mm-hmm. and, you know, or a mountain village and, and a city village. Right. I get that. But they're usually within driving distance of each other. Right. They're usually, oh, I don't know, on the same continent. <laughs> But, I mean, one of the huge controversies around moving the marathon was it's a nine-hour train ride away. And now we're talking about a 23-hour plane ride? I don't know. Part of me wonders wonders really badly if Paris, one reason to do this was to just stick it to them and say, oh, hey. Yeah, get your Airbnb in Tahiti. Right? Hmm. Hmm. We'll see. I mean, so far, you know, the IOC hasn't really said much about it. Just like, well, it's up to... It's up to the organizing committee well, I'll until be sitting, it's not. Until it's not. I'll be sitting back with my drink with its paper umbrella mm-hmm. in my hammock waiting to hear. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure that'll, that news will pop back up in a few years. <laughs> we'll see. That will wrap it up for this week. Let us know what you think about the surfing competition in Tahiti. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 530-70-FEVER. We're Olim Fever on Twitter and Insta and Olympic Fever Podcast Group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. You've nailed it. Do, 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 do.